It's not calling you Josh Frydenberg, it's calling you Dosh Frydenberg. Under the coalition, taxes for hard-working Australians will always be lower. Well, good day, listeners, and welcome once again to the Two Jacks. It is episode fifty. Uh, we've actually been on air for a lot longer than that, but this is the fiftieth episode of uh, of. Uh, our pod where we combine world events and uh, matters uh, occurring in Australia. And joining me, as usual, in Hong Kong, happy 50th uh, pod, Jack. Does that mean we get to raise the bat and show the makers, Mark? Yeah, only only just a little bit. It's only 50, mate. It's only 50. Yeah. Um, but um, you've got another public holiday in Hong Kong. What's what's it? all about today, Jack? Uh, Chung Yung Festival. I, I, I'm not sure. I just think it's a public holiday, but it's something to do with um, you walk up a mountain and drink chrysanthemum tea. Do you do that? Have you no. done that? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but that's 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 uh, what the locals will be doing today. Um, well, some, well, of, me- some of them will. Generally, they'll be shopping. Right. Well, we don't have any construction noise in the background. We do apologise to our listeners in the last couple of episodes. One of them was very, very bad from me. I had incoming scam calls uh, that I just simply couldn't get rid of. And um, I do apologise for that. A little bit of construction noise, but no construction noise in Hong Kong today as it's one of the many public holidays enjoyed by the Hongkonese. Um, Sad news, Jack. Uh, with the uh, with the death at ninety of Bill Hayden, an absolute giant of the Labor Party, he was. There's no doubt about that. He was a uh, Queensland police officer. He studied economics at night. A member for Oxley for many many years. Uh, uh, not quite uh, uh, handed the batter baton over to Pauline Hanson, but um, uh, Hanson became the member for Oxley, didn't she? At some point, she did. Um, so a, a Queensland Labor giant, uh, he was the Minister for Health and then Treasurer in the Whitlam Government, the third Treasurer in the Whitlam Government, and um, and a man who handed down an excellent budget in '75, Jack. Uh, uh, he did. He he tried to he tried to rescue um, the failures of the, you know, the the Whitlam Government from its failures, but it was too late. It might have been too late, but there was a, there was a sense too that Fraser and the uh, coalition opposition were very keen not to let that budget through, Jack, because it might have repaired uh, some of the uh, some of the financial issues that had arisen uh, during the Whitlam government, or at least given people some faith that they were being addressed. Yes. Uh, he became the leader of the opposition uh, following the 1977 election, which, uh, I mean, uh, Fraser and the Libs won in 1975 by uh, a landslide. And then it even got worse in 77, Jack. It did. And, uh, and Goff left the stage and, uh, and, and Bill Hayden became uh, uh, leader of the opposition for six years, uh, almost six years, in fact, and then uh, he, gained, he got very, very close in 1980 um, and, uh, and then uh, he was thwarted 
uh, in his attempt to become Prime Minister in 1983, the drover's dog election, Jack. Uh, yes, uh, in the end, um, as I think Paul Keating put it in, a, in his statement on Bill Hayden's death, uh, the choice was between um, Bill could possibly win the uh, election and, and, and Bob Hawke almost certainly would. And that's the way Labor went. There's some rather lovely stories about John Button in particular uh, running around and trying to – he was a very very close friend and ally of Bill Hayden's and he was the one who had to basically uh, be the um, – uh, the moderator between uh, uh, the Hawke camp and the Hayden camp, uh, of which Keating was a member. Um, and uh, Button tells a story in uh, one of his wonderful books that uh, he uh, came across Bob Hawke in Sandringham. Uh, he was out the back by the by the swimming pool on the Banana Lounge. Um, that's the uh, Fairfax swimming pool, I believe. Uh, Hawke used to refer to it as because he he got it built with money he uh, got from a defo, uh, and uh, and it was uh, John Button's job to tell him that the deal was done, uh, provided that uh, Bill Hayden would become foreign minister in the Hawke government. Uh, which duly occurred, um, but I remember John Button saying that uh, Hawkey was applying the uh, the sunscreen. Uh, in fact, it wasn't sunscreen; it was sun lotion, uh, so liberally that he looked like a um, a well basted turkey, Jack. He yes, I have I have heard that story. A lot of stories about the about the uh, Hayden resigning. Um, uh, my recollection is that I think Hayden flew to uh, to Brisbane. Uh, to, oh, to, uh, sorry, uh, Button flew to Brisbane with uh, Lionel Bowen and Don Grimes, I think, who are also relatively Grimes close to Bill Hayden. Grimes is the one I was thinking of, yes. <laughs> and, um, and he was persuaded to, to, to resign, uh, but he did extract a, uh, a written deal um, uh, from Hawke. Um, in fact, I think Troy Bramston from The Australian might have unearthed this, um, a copy of this letter. Uh, and the letter um, required Hawke to guarantee that uh, Hayden's staff would be found new jobs, uh, and John Dawkins, Peter Walsh and Neil Blewett would remain shadow ministers, and that Hayden would be um, Minister for Foreign Affairs if they won, won the election, and that if he wanted to, he could have five years as High Commissioner in London. Uh, he obviously rejected that offer. He was, in fact, Minister for Foreign Affairs for... Uh, I believe about three years, and then he retired from, or resigned from uh, parliamentary politics and took up the position of Governor General, Jack, which he did with great aplomb. He did, he did. Um, uh, whether uh, Hayden famously said, look, a drover's dog would have won that election. I don't think it was ever quite as clear as that. I think Keating's assessment's right. Um, Hayden was a possibility. Hawke was a, a near certainty. Um, uh, what Hayden did leave behind, though, is um, he'd done a lot of really good work in setting up, um, in repairing the damage that was done by um, Whitlam's period in government, both to uh, Labor's reputation as economic managers and by putting the right people in place to manage the economy better if they got back into power. And Hawke inherited that. There's a very famous uh, Tanberg cartoon, Jack, uh, of, uh, of Malcolm Fraser uh, calling, uh, calling the election. It was called early. Uh, and, uh, and he said, hey, 
hey, Bill, uh, we've got an election on. And the, the voice came back, yes, it's not Bill, it's Bob. And then there was a phrase with the pants down, which was eerily prescient, Jack, because he did, in fact, get caught with the trousers missing, not just down, but missing uh, uh, in the States uh, some years later. Um, oh, who, who hasn't misplaced a pair of trousers in, uh, when you <laughs> well, are not wearing them? <laughs> not while wearing them. I mean, look, you know, uh, you can, yeah, you can misplace them, but generally not when you're wearing them. Laurie Oakes yeah. said this, the great doyen of uh, political journalists, they don't come much better than Bill Hayden. He would have made a great PM. Inheriting Bill's policies and the people he'd put in key roles gave Hawke a head start. A politician in the finest Labor tradition, humble, decent, clever, game as they come, Bill's contribution was immense. Um, I don't often um, uh, give Peter Fitzsimons a plug, but I will on this occasion. Uh, on social media the other day, he, he recalled being at uh, one of the Mirage resorts in Queensland while um, uh, Bill Hayden was Governor-General. And he arrived at breakfast one morning to find a queue of about 20 or 30 people lined up to get their spot at breakfast. And uh, uh, number 21 and 22 were Bill Hayden and Dallas Hayden, his wife. Um, and uh, he, <laughs> he was being encouraged by the staff to skip the queue and he would have none of, none of it. Um, uh, he was waiting in line just like everybody else. Yes, a, a very fine Labor man uh, and a person who brought great credit to the party um, uh, through his uh, uh, a sense of economic management. Um, he was very, very close to Paul Keating, um, uh, through that through that transition period into the Hawke government, and uh, he, uh, he he did basically everything well throughout his life, throughout his political life. Um, uh, like many Labor people of that era, um, they weren't career politicians, Jack. They they had lived lives before politics. And Bill Hayden's case uh, with the Queensland Police, and then with all the with all the heavy lifting he had to do there, uh, he he managed to do an economics degree at night. Uh, they don't make them like that anymore, mate, do they? No. I think just about the only career politician from those days was Keating himself, who kind of left school at 15 to, to sort of start a political career. But mm. they, they were rare. Almost all of them had done something else. All right. Now, what's the wash-up on The Voice, Jack? There's... Uh I'd have to say there's been a fair amount of hubris from the no camp, hasn't there? I don't know if you read Paul Keating, uh, sorry, Paul Keating, Chris Kenny's column uh, on Saturday. Did you have a look at that? Uh, I did. Read part of it. It was a hard read. Uh, I, 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 like him, I, find, I found it a bit much now that uh, given that the referendum has failed, that that those in the no case, it includes Tony Abbott, um, Tony Abbott now wants us to dispense with the Indigenous flag, um, with the, the Aboriginal flag and presumably the Torres Strait Islander flag as well. I read his piece uh, during the week. Uh, the referendum doesn't uh, hold any clauses like that, uh, does it? I mean, why, 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 are we, why are we now stripping back on reconciliation, Jack? Um, no, no, I don't... I just... <laughs> As often is the case, I didn't agree with much of what Tony Abbott had to say. Um, I think there is a point about the um, about the acknowledgements and welcome to countries just being a little bit overdone. Um, uh, people who told me they were going to vote no, um, uh, 
as an aside, would often say, look, we're fed up with that. It's just being, uh, it's just flag? too much of it. No, not so the now, flag. So, no, no. So, no, so no. now Anthony Albanese, according to Tony Abbott, shouldn't be, uh, uh, shouldn't uh, bookmark the Australian flag with the Aboriginal flag and the Torres Strait Islander flag. I mean, uh, we weren't voting on that, were we? No, I, I don't think people care much about that. <laughs> As I say, there is a, um, uh, a body of opinion that perhaps we could uh, wind, not, not stop the welcoming and, and acknowledgement of country, just wind them back a little bit, make them a little bit less ubiquitous. All right. Uh, and the flag should stay as it is. Um, uh, and I did enjoy Chris's nice little slap there for Tony Abbott because she said, you know, this is, we must, we must remember there's uh, the Union Jack sitting uh, in the, in the left hand corner of ours. Uh, he doesn't seem to have any problem with that. Uh, meanwhile, though, in Jack Queensland, uh, the Queensland public servants have been offered five days of paid leave if they are suffering from psychological distress following the failed voice referendum. Is that true? Uh, yes, it is true. Um, it's very strange. Uh, Melbourne's La Trobe University will allow Indigenous staff to take off the first working day uh, following the referendum as well, but that's just a day. This is a week. Jack. Yeah, yeah. I just thought I'd throw in your um, your old uh, university there, um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of people on social media who who frankly need a lot more than a week and a lot of counselling. Well, Twitter said it's, it, there's a there's a tweet here. It's amazing how little introspection the yes voters are doing on themselves and their efforts, which after the efforts that which after the efforts that failed it doesn't even make any sense Jack I, I was on uh, Twitter earlier this morning and um, two or three people who I had followed during the referendum because they were virulent yes people um, were you know calling out all and sundry and um, uh, and bewildered as to why they had lost and uh, if anybody, uh, people were, were trying to engage with them and say, well, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And, and the response inevitably was, that's just a lie. You're all liars, you know. Um, um, so there are some people who are struggling to come to terms with the result. Uh, yeah, well, Frank Brennan uh, has uh, had a bit of a look at that. And uh, he said at Anthony, or he wrote, at Anthony Albanese's news conference acknowledging the loss of the referendum, <coughs> A journalist asked, why do you think Australians voted no? The Prime Minister's answer could not have been simpler. The analysis will go on for some time, no doubt, but the truth is that no referendum has succeeded in this country without bipartisan support. That's really not much need. There's, there's really not much need for further analysis than that. We all knew that from day one, putting his all into his bold election commitment to implement the Uluru Statement from the heart and full Albanese thought, it worth a shot without bipartisan support. Many of us were not convinced, with Labor having lost 24 of the 25 referendum proposals it had put up since Federation. Um, bipartisanship was missing, of course, and I think it's a fantasy to consider that it was a possibility at any stage. Um, uh, Ken Wyatt had run had run as Indigenous Affairs Minister and a member of Cabinet had actually run this uh, across the Morrison and Turnbull governments and was rejected both times. Uh, yes. Um, the Libs I, were never going to come at this, were they? Yeah. Um, Frank Brennan is right to say that um, bipartisanship is a, is a necessary thing to win a referendum, um, but 
he stops there and he shouldn't stop there. Bipartisanship on its own doesn't satisfy, doesn't, doesn't guarantee that you'll guarantee you success. Um, my view is that even if that, uh, the Liberals had supported this, it would still have failed. And the reason I say that is 40% of Labor voters voted no. Yeah, well, we'll never know. We'll never know. Um, uh, George Williams is in The Australian Today, Jack, saying that referenda in this country virtually can't succeed anyway, uh, oh, given the restraints, the double majority. Um uh, it's uh, most unusual when they do get up, and and uh, George's uh, view was that um, we needed to approach this in a different way uh, outside of a referendum. Um, well, I, I think, and, and more, and not just a voice, but more general, any sort of constitutional uh, reform. Um, I think that a lot of the problems <laughs> that the voice, that the, the proponents of the voice were trying to solve, would have been better solved by. Um, non-referendum um, uh, options, um, but I don't think I, I don't agree that referendums are, are impossible to pass. They're hard to pass, um, uh, and what you need to do is to have a long process where you um, find out what is is acceptable to most of most Australians, um, and that they will live with and that they will support. Uh, that does t- that takes time and patience, and and that's the only way you can get it done. All right. Well, for a bit of analysis around uh, for, from the commentariat around p- potentially sort of electoral consequences, Paul Kelly wrote this in the Australian: Out of one hundred and fifty-one federal electorates, only thirty-two delivered a yes vote, but they were defined by high-income earners, the professional class, people of influence and power, and young people. This is a world of progressive social conscience and conviction. Yes, seats were in the inner cities, the affluent suburbs, Sydney's eastern suburbs, the entire North Shore, Melbourne's pro-green inner city, its well of off electorates, Kuyong and Goldstein, and most conspicuously in the high-income governing class in the ACT. Um, does this, this is what we talked about in the wake of the uh, last federal election, that there was a profound shift in demographics, firstly around age, and then around uh, the um, what we might call the professional classes, high income earners, um, uh, Jack, and and certainly we would look at this from a point of view of, well, can can the um, can the coalition re, uh, re, uh, re, uh, re, can they uh, regain Kuyong and Goldstein? That would seem very unlikely now. Um, it was unlikely before. It was unlikely if they could get them back quickly, uh, and that was unlikely before the referendum was called. But it's it's more unlikely now. You get Not much. You, more. you really get one chance when an independent takes you takes a party, you know, a major political party seat away from them, you get one chance and that's the next election and then basically you wait until those independent MPs retire, Jack. Yeah, I think this this situation might be a little bit different to that, um, but they were unlikely to get them back straight away um, and they're marginally less likely to get them back post-referendum. Uh, the Guardian has come out and said uh, getting Dutton on board would have involved the government finding a model that could be supported by both Nampatina Price, Jacinda Price, and the Indigenous leader, leaders who had crafted the Uluru Statement, particularly Megan Davis. And it goes on to say, in the real world, this seemed a stretch, to put it mildly, and that would seem to be fairly, fairly difficult uh, sort of arrangement to make. Um 
so uh, the, really, the, 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 the thing I think is missing in the Guardian's article is at no stage do they consider consulting anybody else apart from other politicians. <clears throat> what they should have been consulting was with the wider community to find a proposition that a majority of Australians could support. And if they'd done that, they might have succeeded. Uh, sticking with the commentary, Michelle Grattan says, given that around six in ten people voted no, former Labor power broker Graham Richardson is almost certainly right when he said this week, there was never a time when there was a glimmer of hope that this could get through. It's pretty much your position, Jack. To blame, it's, it's it's always a nice thing uh, to have a political judgment franked by Richard because he's a very very astute political observer. But that's how honestly that's how honestly it seemed to me right from the beginning. I couldn't see it winning. Uh, Michelle goes on to say, to blame lack of bipartisanship, mis-slash-disinformation and racism is kidding ourselves. The margin was too wide. You have to agree with that. I, I have to agree with that. To think Peter Dutton's support could have swung things is a very long stretch. Again, tends to agree with your position. The Conservatives would have been divided, whatever Dutton did. And finally, Jack, uh, to Waleed Ali, on the project, he said it ends up being the elite argument. The more elite sector of society, the more likely you were to vote yes, he explained. The biggest dividing line seems to have been education. If you're in a seat with high levels of tertiary education, bachelor or post, you're at the very top end of the yes vote. If you had the lowest levels of socio-education, you were at the low end of the yes vote. That's not to say people who were educated know what they're doing and people who don't have tertiary education don't. That's a new that's a new subclass that, that uh, Wally's just created there. Lowest levels of socio-education. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly what it meant. What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean? <laughs> I've got no idea. Um, uh, people have done a booth-by-booth -booth analysis of these things and even within the, the, the no-seats, which is almost all of them, um, you can find pockets of, you know, small pockets of yes votes and those small pockets of yes votes are the, are the, the areas that I know from as long as I know them um, most closely resemble uh, inner Melbourne or the North Shore or the eastern suburbs of Sydney, inner Sydney. Um, you know, they're, um, they're full of professional class people, I suppose. But you maintain that this will have little, if any, um, consequences for the two major political parties going forward. Yeah, I do. That's I've said that all along. I, I never thought it was much to. I don't think it was going to be decided by uh, political parties, um, and nor do I think um, uh, it's going to um, have a huge effect on the electoral prospects of either political party. Um, uh, yeah, people, uh, particularly in the no seats, the forty percent of Labor voters who voted no, um, they at least are smart enough to say, well, look. We didn't like the referendum proposal, so we voted against it. But that doesn't mean we want to vote Liberal at the next election. Well, Cos Samaras uh, from uh, Redcliffe Polling uh, is uh, saying the Liberals are taking on all the wrong lessons from the referendum result. And I couldn't agree more with that. It will hurt them in seats they lost in 2022. Voters in the majority voted no on what was being proposed, conflating it to something larger when it comes to Aboriginal policy like Tony Abbott and the flag, is simplistic. Um, uh, he goes on to say, as we just discussed, Kuyun and Goldstein just got a lot harder 
at a state level, over 60% of booths in Hawthorne voted yes. That's over 18% higher than the Victorian Liberal leader secured in his seat in the same booth last year uh, and goes on to point out that the uh, that the, um, the the yes vote was very strong in, in the Sydney TL seats as well. So that, that, that says the, something. It says something nice about the no voters. They're smart enough to work out that it's a different process. That because you vote no in the referendum doesn't mean you vote uh, liberal in the, in the election. It says something less flattering about the people in the in the, the, the well, North Shore and Eastern suburbs who aren't they entitled to their opinions? Yeah, or would you, would you have preferred a hundred percent no vote? No, what I'm saying is I think liberal, the Liberals will be punished because the yes people um, won't just say, oh, well, that was the referendum um, and um, uh, and we'll move on to electoral politics, oh, which, is, which is a different thing. They'll mm. say, we want to punish the Liberals for, 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 for pushing a no vote. I, I would say, just in concluding wrapping this topic up uh, for the week, uh, I would think hubris will be the killer. Uh, and when we start seeing, um, uh, and I, I noticed a lot of this last week, we start seeing this in uh, sort of general commentary uh, that uh, uh, that this is the beginning of the end of the Labor government. I just think that's an absolute nonsense. And worse, if the Conservatives and they are they tend to this anyway, and they tend to hubris whenever they have a win, and they haven't had many in recent times. Um, uh, it, it, that sort of hubris, this kind of let's go a little bit further, Peter Dutton's call for a royal commission into um, uh, child sexual abuse uh, in Indigenous and remote communities, which is just a victim-blaming exercise if ever you've seen one. Um, and m- most recently he rejected, you know, his... Um, uh, uh, his decline to, to advance the uh, another referendum, Jack, just simply on constitutional recognition. Now, that's probably the smart move, um, but it's very different to what he was saying before um, the referendum. Yeah, hubris is often a killer in politics, and hubris led us to this situation. This, the government thought they could push this through without wide support and without bipartisanship. That's hubris at its best, if you like. Um, but everyone makes mistakes. It's what you do next that matters. Um, uh, and and, and it, that's up to both parties now to get this right. Um, the first thing you do when you lose is to ask yourself, what did we get wrong? Not Don't go run around blaming everybody else, blame the media, blame Rupert Murdoch, etc. Say, what did we get wrong? Why did we lose? This is true in sport and it's true in politics. But the worst thing you can do is to, to tell yourself the wrong thing, as you suggest the Liberals might be doing. Um, it's early days yet. Uh, but to tell themselves that this proves that they're better at everything and it doesn't prove that at all. They, oh. didn't, they didn't defeat this election. The people defeated this. Uh, the, the defeat, they didn't defeat this referendum. The referendum lost because people didn't support it. Uh, yeah, I saw, you know, in terms of hubris, I've seen uh, Dutton, we've mentioned Abbott, uh, Michaelia Cash is another one. Um, yeah, and now, of course, Peter Dutton is awaiting um, policies uh, uh, that he's going to consult with uh, Jacinta Price, essentially. So that's his voice now. Um, that's the voice now, um, Jacinta Price. Um, <laughs> my main concern is that we will start victimising Indigenous Australians um, 
uh, through policies now that say, well, you know, we're not, you know, these little these little things like Abbott suggested, getting rid of the flag and these sorts of things, that we will go backwards in terms of reconciliation. And yes, we can point fingers of blame all over the place, but if that is the net effect around Australia, then uh, then uh, it's been a complete disaster. Well, what what we need to have is is an honest. Uh, conversation about what's gone wrong for 40 or 50 years in particularly in remote indigenous uh, communities uh, and that means everything on the table it means cultural practices everything you know, why is why are these things not working what can we do better what can we learn from the um, uh, the 40 or 50 percent of indigenous Australians who are um, not disadvantaged who are successful who are living in the cities etc cetera, etc cetera. what can we learn from that experience to help the remote um, indigenous communities and everything should be on the table and it should be an open and honest conversation no saying well you got this wrong 10 years ago and you got that wrong 20 years ago Let's start from today and say, what yeah, can that's we do where now? I think that's where I think the Liberals' audit is going, Jack. Um, mm-hmm. And there was some nonsense written about Noel Pearson, um, uh, you know, that he should face criminal charges over defrauding the Commonwealth over grants and this sort of thing. That's not coming from the opposition. That's coming from the fringe, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and we just need to avoid this becoming a blame-shifting uh, exercise that focuses on uh, Indigenous Australians generally and uh, those in, in, in remote, in remote uh, areas specifically. Yeah, well, uh, we, we've got to start from the, from the, from the I, base. I don't think there's any appetite for this anymore, Jack. That's no, the problem. We have to, we have to start from, from, the, uh, from the, uh, the base point is we know that a lot of money's been wasted. We know that everything we've tried to do hasn't worked. That, let's just accept that. doesn't matter whose fault it is. That's just where we are. Um, uh, but where we go from here is what matters, is what can we do now to make it better? All right, moving on now um, to the big story around the world, and that's uh, Israel and Gaza. Um, uh, no ground war as yet, Jack. We've talked about some of the problems that the IDF might face with a ground war. Um, everyone else in the Middle East sort of sitting off and waiting uh, to see what happens. Uh, frequent airstrikes into Gaza and missile uh, attacks coming that way. Of course, the uh, uh, the hospital, of course, in Gaza was bombed uh, with a huge amount of casualties and we still don't know uh, who fired the round that, that, destroyed, or, that destroyed all those lives. Uh, the Israelis uh, maintain it was a misfire of a Hamas um, a missile. Um, Hamas, of course, believe it was an Israeli airstrike. Joe Biden, US President, has taken the Israeli side on that uh, and looked at some of the, I guess, uh, some of the intelligence that we wouldn't have at our disposal. I did look at some of it. Jack, have you seen anything? You know, did you did you look at the footage of the missile fires and the one that got away? Uh, and of the damage to the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it seemed unlikely from the photos I saw that um, uh, that it was anything like what Hamas was saying. But, you know, there you go. Uh, but, uh, you know, there, there's always stuff that we don't get to see. So There's always, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, you know, in that there was a, there was a volley of rockets set off from um, northern Gaza and one you can see missed. But these missiles have... 
I would say, limited um, explosive co- capabilities in terms of causing that sort of damage on a hospital. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's impossible to know who to believe at this stage. Um, but the fallout, fallout around the world, Jack. There were there were a big march. There was a big march in um, in Sydney on on uh, uh, on on the weekend. Uh, attendees stretched from the steps of Town Hall along the tram tracks of George Street in the city centre, chanting "Free, Free Palestine!" and "Shame, Shame Albanese." But really, it was a fairly quiet and gentle. Um, I, I listened to a number of the speakers there who were um, uh, denouncing racism, denouncing anti-Semitism. It seemed to me to be a fairly um, good measure of people. Again, I want to talk about electoral prospects. I know this is an awful war where innocents are being killed on a daily basis. Um, but uh, is, there a pro- is there a problem that there, there might be for, um, uh, for Albanese in Western Sydney? Uh, there's a probably a problem for uh, left politics around the world with this because um, the the fringe end of the left uh, have thrown in their lot with with Hamas. It's sort of an extraordinary um, uh, extraordinary collaboration, if you like, really, um, uh, because all the things that the extreme left proposed to hold dear Hamas is um, virulently opposed to. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. What, what, what I'm what I'm getting at is the the um, the discussion on them. And the Labor government has a, a two state solution, so it supports the establishment of a Palestinian homeland, um, but um, with the um, uh, uh, ethnic makeup of Western Sydney, uh, might uh, Albanese face some real problems of his own domestically? Um, yes. Um- one of the things <laughs> I think is extraordinary about the politics of this is that um, uh, I don't believe that people like uh, Jason Clare, Tony Burke, Chris Bowen, um, uh, all of these people, um, Ed Husing, etc., with uh, Western Sydney electorates, Western yeah. Sydney, um, uh, Richard Miles and Correo, um, I, I expect every last one of those knew that a resounding no vote was coming, right? And, and, and knew that, you know, yep. like, like Graham Richardson, they thought this had little chance of success from a long way out, yep. right? Um, and I don't believe that none of them sat down with Anthony Albanese and said, um, Prime Minister, this is going badly. Um, uh, I, I just don't think that could, that's possible. I think somebody somewhere, um, maybe not in Cabinet, but someone somewhere has had a chat to Elbow and said, um, uh, we need to rethink this. Um, so, and, and yet it didn't happen. Um, so that gives him a, an internal political um, uh, problem, I think, in the Labor Party, because I think his standing with, with his colleagues is diminished because he got this wrong. Um, well, that's the voice. And- but what, what I'm talking about now is uh, Labor's, the Albanese yep. government's, a, a and, support, and, and, support for a, a for, sorry a two state solution, but also um, um, support. We hear the we hear the, the rallying chant of shame Albanese shame. Yep. Uh, will there be a significant backlash for those people like Chris Bowen, Ed Husick, etc.? And, and much those same much of those same politicians have 
um, a, a large part of their electorate who don't believe in a two-state solution. Um, uh, you know, that's why they chant uh, free, free Palestine from the river to the sea. Anyone with a basic understanding of geography and politics knows what that means is the complete destruction of the state of Israel. Right. There is no other meaning for that, for that chant. Well, I guess, I guess if you were a, a pro-Palestinian living in Western Sydney, Jack, um, uh, you might look at both, uh, both major parties and say, well, there's nothing much to be gained here. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, they're, go- they're going to find themselves uh, with more in common with the Greens because that's basically the Greens' position. The Greens purport to say that they want a two-state solution, but they don't really. They want Israel gone. Um, um, so um, that's a problem, not just in Australia, but it, it's well, they don't actually world. say that. But you, you, you're actually right. I mean, Jenny Leong's stuff. I mean, firstly, there was the attack, the Hamas attack, which led to the deaths of over a thousand people, uh, more than 150 people taken hostage. Uh, there were, I believe, two American hostages returned uh, over the weekend. Um, but uh, the, the large body of them remain in uh, remain captive. Um, uh, Jenny Leong didn't even look at the some of the worst um, outrages um, before she basically just assumed that the, the Hamas position. It was it was really awful, Jack. Well, people um, were protesting about Israel while Hamas was still killing Israelis. Before the, the killing I mean. was over, and then, and then she people were protesting about Israel. Yeah, and then she doubled down again, and and it was so. For, for me, this is this is a conflict where um, you cannot afford to take sides. Um, uh, as as an observer, and we're not talking about governments, the US or Australia, but but as an observer, this is one that you where you find it very very difficult to take sides. I mean, both sides are. Um, uh, uh, indiscriminate in terms of who they target um, and that leads to the, the loss of innocent lives, civilians, children, women. Um, taking taking a side here, it just seems to me to be a very, very odd thing to do. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm generally on the side of uh, the Western liberal democracies in these situations. Now, that might be that might be the case, and I fully understand your position. But at the same time, there's going to be some great ugliness. Um, uh, uh, there's already a must of it, there's a, a lot of it has already occurred, and, and and a great deal is to come if we listen to the IDF's leaders and uh, and talk about how they're going to destroy Hamas once and for all, uh, and they'll just leave this. Very small strip of land. Um, I believe there are also bombings in the West Bank today, Jack. Uh, and in Syria, etc. Syria. Um, uh, mm. uh, the well, let, let, let's let's get let's get to rather than the, looking in at the, the immediate at, at the aftermath stuff about political affiliation. What, what, what is the prospect of this becoming a broader conflict? Um, there is some prospect of that. Very serious, I would yeah. say, very serious um, possibilities. Iran is sitting by and watching. Um, there have been bombings in Lebanon and the Golan Heights, as you say, uh, bombings in Syria. Um, and when you look at the way this is established with the US supporting Israel, 
And you've got on the other side, essentially, and historically this pans out in the old days of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union has always been pro-Arab. So we do have this sort of potential for superpower conflict. Um, that Yeah, the, the US, I think I've sent a second carrier group to the area now um, uh, yes. to, to rattle the cage of that. Um, uh, you know, there's a... There's a lot of emotion about this, um, uh, and uh, and I can understand that. Um, but you know, generally speaking, I think Israel's got the right to defend itself. Um, I want to see oh, Israel survive. Uh, as I say, I'm generally on the so side of Western liberal democracies. Um, it is one. Um, it, it's the only one in the. It's, it's the only country in the area that any sane person would want to live in. Um, um, yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, uh, <coughs> I, I, have you been looking much? Let's say, say this before. Have you, you been go looking on. much at Saudi reports? Have you been looking much at what's going on in the Emirates? Because it's like it's not. If you if you do, you'll find it's like nothing is occurring in Gaza. Yeah, because, because they don't support the Palestinians um, uh, at, at all. Um, um, almost no one in the Arab world will take. There'll be no Arab country that will take Palestinian refugees. Guarantee you that. Um, just while we look at the West and the West reaction, there was a hell of a lot of, you know, people were lighting up buildings in the colours of the Israeli flags and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, and even at the time, you could see this wasn't going to last. Um, the, the We Stand With Israel thing wasn't going to survive yeah. um, uh, when the Israel had to take some tough action, and they do have to take some tough action. It's going to get ugly, right? It's going to get hard to support Israel, and they were never going to keep doing that. That was just performative nonsense. Yes, you did say at the time, Jack, it's going to be hard to keep supporting Israel. Um, yes. And, I, and that's what you meant at the time. I, yes. Yep. Uh, the response to killing over a 1,000 people, most of them innocent civilians, um, by Hamas, there was always going to be a huge reaction, a huge military response there. Uh, is Israel and the IDF looking at... Um, uh, uh, Perhaps not engaging in a in a ground war in in Gaza because first the first thing I'd say from my um, uh, little bit of study into the IDF is it is probably its numbers are down. I mean I know there have been three hundred thousand reservists called up, but its numbers have been down compared to historic historic levels, and and there are there's certainly talk around the morale of the IDF um, and. Uh, um, I also believe that once you do engage in a, in, a, in, a, in a ground war, basically anything goes on the table at that stage. Things can change very, very quickly in terms of broadening the conflict regional and possibly even global. Um, uh, so is, is there, do you think, some hesitation about a ground war from the IDF? Well, I, think, I think there'd be quite a lot. I mean, they don't want to... Uh they don't want a Stalingrad situation. You know? They will walk um, into. They will walk into a, 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 an environment that is deeply hostile. Yeah, so well, so well reinforced be, positions. They, they will. Yeah. Um, they will only move on that if they're confident that they can pull it off. And and and, and to the to the Hamas supporters out there, I'd say, uh, just tell Hamas to. Um, release all those civilian, uh, all those civilian hostages unharmed. That might improve your cause a little bit. 
Because we seem to have forgotten about that. About 150 to go. Uh, I would think that would be a major step in the right direction. If if if, if indeed you Hamas supporters are, are, are sincere about this, get on social media, get in the newspapers, and start telling Hamas to release the hostages. Yes, I would think that would be a major step in the right direction, Jack. Um, meanwhile, around the world, um, uh, protests throughout the West. Um, uh, in the EU, in the EU, in Europe, in the UK, large numbers um, uh, clashes with police uh, in Berlin. At least seventy police officers were injured and two hundred protesters arrested. Numerous vehicles burned. Molotov cocktails thrown and various destructions around the place. And the Met had to issue a notice about the word jihad, Jack. Um, yeah, uh, the, the policing, I've, I've watched a, quite a lot of videos of this. Um, I haven't seen policing, uh, the, the policing in Germany and the Netherlands and in France in particular. Um, Jack, I haven't seen policing like this for a long, long time. Well, the um, old baton charges, Jack, going uh, back to the old baton charges. Not just the baton charges. When they arrest someone, um, uh, uh, there's a couple of cut lunches thrown. If the bloke goes to the deck, the, the, the slipper goes straight in, you know. Um, uh, hasn't been seen in the UK or Australia forever. I don't think what well, it seems like forever. Um, but the uh, police force in the UK are completely different to that. Um, they're even finding excuses for people calling for jihad. So there you go. So this is Hizbut Tahrir, which has been a uh, an Islamic group that uh, has been uh, faced a lot of criticism in Australia. It has a, a strong base in Western Sydney, uh, and, and the use of jihad, the use of the term uh, jihad was put about by Hizbut Tahrir. But the London Met says that's okay. Yeah, um, we're talking before about the, the politics in Australia too. I, I forgot to mention this, but where I think it breaks down is that the uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free crowd, you know, that is destruction of Israel. Uh, that's nowhere near, it's a significant major, minority um, uh, around the West and the world, but nowhere near a majority. Most people don't believe that, I don't think, right? Um, so that gives the progressive parties some difficulty because they've got a chunk of the party who's calling for something that they can't sell to the wider electorate. Right. Um, but in regard to the London Met and what you describe as a sort of a softly, softly approach from police there, um, there was some uh, uh, issues, uh, well, so some, some, some tweets sent out, Said one that said that there is going to be a counterforce in the West to this eruption of jihad support and no one is going to like it. Someone said, I hate to say it, but I honestly think this is the beginning of the end for British Jews. That is awful and ominous. Uh, another one saying, from a politically moderate Jewish student at an elite law school, I'm doing better right now than my Jewish friends on the left. They are truly adrift. They look around and see their lefty friends celebrating the massacre of Jews and they know that they are completely and utterly alone. Just uh, break away from it for a moment and uh, the conditional can, can release program... Can I just program, say that that, that no, no, fits Just with- before you do, Jack, just before you do. Uh, the conditional release program um, uh, has uh, an interview with uh, uh, Yaakov Aron. Uh, and uh, an Israeli, oh, sorry, a, a Jewish uh, Jewish fellow living living in Australia, uh, with a background in uh, uh, <coughs> ultra orthodox religions, 
um, that uh, interview with Joel will be up later this week. Go on, sorry, Joe. Go yeah, on, uh, sorry, I, 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 I couldn't, I can't see you today. Um, the um, that those comments about the end of British Jewry and about what Jews around the world are, th- are thinking fits with what I'm hearing um, uh, from. Jewish friends, uh, and, and you know, the, they're on the WhatsApp all the time. Everybody knows somebody who knows somebody, or, or everybody's got some personal connection with the people who were killed. Um, everybody's feeling the pinch around the Western world. They no longer feel safe. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, a very, very, very bad situation for Jewry around the world. Well, Justin Trudeau hasn't really helped, has he? Um, uh, as members. He said, as members of the Palestinian, Arab and black Muslim communities gathered for prayer yesterday, I wanted them to know this. That is Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister. We know you're worried and hurting. We're here for you. We will not stop advocating for civilians to be protected and for international law to be upheld. And that's okay. That's quite a good message. But what else did he, did he mention Israel at all in any yeah, of those Yeah, someone put up a response saying... Anyone else hurting or murdered or kidnapped or tortured, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, anyway, that's uh, Justin. Yeah. All right. Uh, now, uh, slightly more amusing stuff, Jack. We've got an election coming. There's still a fair way off. It must be held no later than January the twenty eighth, twenty twenty five, in the UK, where they have more or less fixed five-year terms. And there was a by-election uh, there uh, over the weekend or two, last, two by uh, last week. Yeah, two, uh, two sorry, yes, that's yeah. right. Um, uh, Labor gained mid-beds, uh, which was vacated this uh, this uh, in the northern summer by Tory ex-Cabinet Minister Nadine Dorries. Um, the red wall is looks like it's being put together brick by brick, Jack. Uh, yes, um, more than that, um, uh, uh, Tories are... The stunning that, results, yeah. Yeah, Tory, it's a 20% swing, um, and the Tories think that even previously safe Tory seats are, are now at risk. Well, yes, I mean, when you talk about uh, the Red Wall, I mean, mid-beds, the seat of mid-beds, uh, Labor has never won it in 105 years, Jack, and uh, it's got it now. Uh, <coughs> it's a mid Bedfordshire for anyone who's uh, looking at it, uh, <coughs> and uh, uh, this uh, Labor shadow cabinet minister Peter Kyle issued this statement, nailing the uh, by that particular by-election result mid Bedfordshire as a political earthquake. And he said this is the biggest by-election shock in history. It is a political earthquake. And it is one that is sending an unignorable message to Westminster and to Rishi Sunak that this country deserves better. So, yeah. Uh, Where was the other one? uh, Victory for Labor in Brexit backing Tamworth saw the party overturn the Tories' 19,000 vote majority from the 2019 general election. Um, What can the Tories do, Jack? Uh, well, well, one thing we should just point out is that um, it was a, a turnout issue um, in large part for the Tories. Um, Labor won um, uh, Staffordshire uh, with just 811 votes more than they recorded last time. Two-thirds of the Tory voters from last time stayed Just home. didn't turn up. Yep. Just didn't turn up. Well, 
I'm, well, we'll get to what can the Tories do in a minute. I'll just ask you, but but what they seem to be doing, uh, from my reading, is that they seem to be going on this mad culture war pursuit, Jack, as if that's a sort of a good strategy for them. You know, there, there were a number of cabinet ministers who talked about, well, we'll get rid of the meat tax. Well, there is no meat tax. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll get rid of uh, we'll get rid of all this sort of um, uh, woke nonsense that doesn't exist. So that's a strategy that is not going to play well during an election. Can they do anything? I, I, I suspect they're just going to be blasted out of power. You know, in uh, huge numbers when that election well, finally comes, so probably be sometime late next year. Almost certainly they'll lose. Um, the, um, uh, the the only risk for Labor is um, is that it faces that uh, very internal problem that we were talking about that that Labor in Australia faces in Western Sydney. Uh, only it's much worse for the UK. Much Labor. Where, much more marked. Yeah. Much more marked. You still got um, Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbynites yes, running around. Yeah, well, well, Jeremy's Jeremy's out of the party, but he the, the Corbynistas are still on the party. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and yeah. they are virulently pro Hamas. Um, and um, and that is a, a pro Russian. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, well, I don't think that can be sold to the wider the pro community. Russia. Yeah, and pro Putin. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, you know, um, they'll tell you they're not, but but they yes, but what what they uh, what, what they're calling for would essentially mean the disintegration of Ukraine under under the jackboot of of Putin. Um, yeah. The, oh the, no, the, we've. Corbyn will always say, "Oh no, I spotted Putin before anybody else, and um, and I think he's a wicked man." Well, don't support his policies. Don't support his invasion. Yeah, there, there is a there is a reason for their position. Is that that part of the uh, um, UK Labor Party is really anti-West? They're anti the Western world. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're anti-NATO. They're, I mean, well, well, anti-West no, no, definitely, no, just- but but specifically anti-NATO. Yeah, but the, it's it's a broader thing than that. You know, they, of course they're going to support Hamas. Why? Because Israel's really part of the Western world, and they hate it. Oh, oh. All right, back to the Tories' woes, Jack. Uh, one Tory MP with a majority over Labor of almost twenty thousand in his partly rural, partly urban seat in southwest England said that virtually every Conservative-held area, however secure at elections past, was now up for grabs. You can't yep. put any other gloss on it other than it is bloody awful, he said. Mm. The vast majority of us in safe seats are now in play. There may be colleagues who are in play who don't yet realise they are. There will be people in the stockbroker belt who could be at risk. I think I've got a fighting chance, but I won't be shocked if I don't win. There you go, Jack. Another Tory backbencher with a big majority in his northern seat was just as downcast. There is nothing Rishi can really do now other than to try to look competent and hope for the best. You can't admit that's not much of a strategy, but it's probably all they've got. You can't admit that it is now just about minimising losses. You can't go out and say that, but that is where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how long have they been in power? 13 years or something, isn't it? 13, yeah. 14 years? Yeah, the, the, I, I think they're running out of steam. Oh, yeah, that 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 seems to that that seems very very right to me, and and the way they're playing it 
you know, I just can't believe it. They're saying, you know, well, we'll get, we've got rid of these taxes and we've done this and we've done that. And you go, hang on, you've been in power for 13 years. Don't, you can't blame the other side for failures here. You probably has, as that uh, backbencher said, um, uh, <laughs> look competent and hope for the best. Yeah, well, as always with these things, you've got to ask yourself what we got wrong, not what you know. Um, what external forces aren't killing us; we're killing ourselves. Well, they won't. They won't do any uh, postmortems until they're thrashed. But um, yeah, um, uh, and they won't come to any reality. From, from what I've seen, they're they're, they're playing this sort of woke, uh, woke uh, uh, <coughs> culture war nonsense. And uh, you know, if you if you fall for that stuff, uh, well, you need your head red. Meanwhile, Jack in the United States, chaos within the Republican Party. They cannot come to terms with the speaker, and you've got the what do they call them? The uh, the angry eight, uh, the angry eight, the ones who basically c- contrived with the Democratic Party to remove Kevin McCarthy, uh, and now are being pointed at uh, as the ones who basically uh, are in the are in the uh, 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 a part of the problem in in getting a new speaker. Jim Jordan had three goes. He's now uh, hand the baton over to someone else. Where's it going to end? Uh, well, I think there's a determination amongst um, the vast majority of Republican Republicans in the Congress that um, whatever else happens, the um, the eight uh, people should not be rewarded. That they should not get their way. Uh, and if that means doing a deal with Hakeem Jeffries, um, the Democrat, to be the next speaker, they will do that rather than give. Matt Gates and his seven co- cohort, uh, cohort the angry cohort eight, um, uh, but they won't give them their way. It's, it's a oh. line in the sand. It's a, it's a line in the sand moment. Gates is a sh- utter shambles. You just sort of wonder why he's still in politics. He, in the end, he was found not to have any charge, not to have any uh, uh, charges brought against him for um, um, child prostitution and all sorts of other things. Uh, He's an absolute disaster, massive trumper, of course, massive disaster uh, that he's been for the Republicans. And and what long-term impact is this going to have? You, you, you do understand where his, electorate, where his electorate is, don't you? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and no doubt he'd be re-elected. He's a Florida man, by the way, folks. And, uh, oh, I think Florida, in, Florida panhandle, by the way. More, more, more that's right. I think it's. Uh, I think he's uh, a congressional uh, congressional number one in Florida, isn't he? Is, yeah, is he is. the uh, oh, district no, district number one, which would be up in the Tallahassee area? No, uh, no, no, Florida. no. It's right. It's, it's right down on the Redneck Riviera. Oh, right down near Mobile, Alabama. Yeah, I see. Um, <clears throat> so you think that there's a very strong prospect that a Democrat will become Speaker of the House? That, that, that's that's a possibility, yes. But what does this mean for the Republicans showing in the congressional election in 2024? That can't um, be good. Uh, not a lot, I expect. Um, uh, the, the general feeling of chaos won't help, uh, but... You know, I suspect most Americans are paying that this zero to to little attention. Well, when we look at the polling in in the United States, Jack, you know, we talk about uh, um, uh, approval ratings for uh, for uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump and and 
and uh, more often than not, they're in the negative. But when you look at Congress, how effective do you think the Congress is? I mean, there's about 85% who just think it should be thrown out. I yeah, mean, they're huge not numbers yeah. of Americans think their 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 parliament, their Congress is failing them. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That, that's what one of the things that helped Trump get elected. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, the the man from the man without any sort of political baggage. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's not really helping him right now, though, is it, Jack? Because uh, there've been. Um, well, Sydney Power, um, Sydney Powell has not released a Kraken. Uh, she has uh, decided a plea bargain, copped a handful of misdemeanours, uh, pleaded guilty to those, uh, and has as has Kenneth Cheesebro, which I think happened to, happened yesterday. He's indicated that he will flip as well. Those two were the first in the Rico. Uh, the first two in 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 the nineteen charged uh, RICO offences in in Fulton County, Fulton County, Georgia. Uh, those two had uh, requested a trial, uh, and uh, before that took place, now they've both flipped Jack. The uh, they've got a gag order um, uh, placed on them. They're not allowed to contact any of the of their co-accused in the RICO uh, trial. Um, uh, they essentially will uh, be required to give evidence on, on behalf of the prosecution. Now they become crown witnesses in in uh, in, uh, in in our terms. What does this mean for Donald Trump, Jack? He must be getting a little bit toe about this. Um, no, I think it means he's. Um, if he gets re-elected, it'll be on the back of um, uh, the, the legal cases against him. Well. Yeah, but let's let's just stick with what we're dealing with here. So certainly what we've got here is Fulton County, Georgia, RICO offences. You've got two flipping, and this is what happens with RICOs, right? That, that, and in Georgia, it's particularly marked. Georgia has five-year minimum mandatory jail sentences for uh, anyone convicted of a RICO offence. So that puts enormous pressure on the co-accused to flip, and we've already seen two flip. Um, there's talk that there'll be one, that there's one already flipped in in the Florida matter over the over the other um, uh, over the uh, secret and confidential documents uh, pr- um, a prosecution. Um, uh, <coughs> it, it, it looks more and more like come March this will be sorted, and if Trump is found guilty on the basis of Sidney Powell or Kenneth Cheesebra or any one of the others, you will see, I'm going to tip, you'll see at least 12 go. You'll see 12 roll of those indicted and it may be more. So that isolates Trump. It, 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 it means that people like Powell and Cheesebra will be ev- giving evidence against him um, and it makes a conviction for the RICO offences more likely than not. And as I say before, convicted, five-year minimum mandatory jail term. Yeah. Um, uh, if he gets back into the White House, as I say, it'll be on the back of um, uh, the, the, the choices yeah, that have been made. Straining, yeah, that's just straining. That's just straining credibility at the moment. Basically, we've got a very, very serious four-count 
Um, and, and of course, Cheeseborough and Powell are both named in the federal indictment, the four count federal indictment. They're named as unindicted co conspirators. So they may find themselves uh, pleading, or they are, they have pleaded guilty to misdemeanours in Georgia, but still find themselves um, potentially. Um, uh, 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 prosecutable um, in, in Washington, D.C. I mean, these trials will be this. The Georgia business goes to trial in March for Trump. Um, the Washington, D.C. stuff goes in, goes to trial in the same month. Um, if this is allowing Trump to become president, I mean, I, I, I just I, I think you're, you're not dealing with what's going to happen first. And that is, yeah, if he's well, con- convicted in Georgia, he goes to jail minimum five years. Yeah, I, I, if I he's think convicted that, on the four counts in DC, he's looking at twenty-five years. I think a, a, a wide um, a, a part of the American population don't have any faith in um, in the prosecutions, don't have any faith in the legal proceedings, and there's a reason. For, well, I, I actually share part of that. Um, I, I have a different view to on RICO prosecutions to to you. Um, I'm glad we don't do that sort of thing in Australia. I think it's basically yeah. prosec- prosecutorial <laughs> misconduct. Um, uh, and the only straightforward charges, he's, the only straightforward, clear-cut, easy-to-understand for the American people charges are the ones in Florida, and he'll almost certainly get convicted on those down in Florida, the, the, the documents charges. But all the rest, yeah, of, it, all the rest of it is going to look like <coughs> um, someone politically putting their thumb on the scale. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, I think as the evidence as the evidence comes out, I think we'll see a, a, a change of mind because what Cheeseborough was actually provided the advice, the legal advice, was to create a suit, a, a, a suite of false electors, which would turn, which would overturn the result of the 2020 presidential election, and. Um, uh, Meadows, Trump, Mark Meadows, uh, Trump's chief of staff, and Rudy Giuliani, uh, his personal counsel, and Donald Trump himself would be, for mine, looking at very, very long jail terms. Um, and, you know, the, the fix was in. They knew. And this is what people like Powell and Cheeseborough will be saying in court, in evidence against him before a jury. They'll be saying that he knew that he'd lost but he continued to conspire with a number of people to overturn the election. That this wasn't just a simple, oh, gee, I, you know, I'm not quite sure. Let's check out. Let's check out the voting. This was a concerted effort uh, to overturn the result of the 2020 presidential election. We've got to get through all that before we even get to these great questions of where, if Donald Trump ends up in prison, where are they going to put him, those sorts of things, what's going to happen in in the uh, in the election come November 2024. That you, we've got to deal with all of these things first. Yeah, and, well, it's about politics in the end. It's going to be determined by, um, uh, uh, I think he'll be the Republican nominee and um, <clears throat> I think it, every little bit of these legal trials helps him uh, in, a, in the pol- politics of it. Yeah, I'm not so sure uh, that once uh, his um, um, his uh, uh, the extent of his 
the extent of his knowledge and uh, what he uh, what he what he purported to do, what he was going to do with the advice of people like Kenneth Cheeseborough, is that uh, he was basically going to roll overturn the uh, the election itself, the views of the people, and I think that will become clearer as we go. Anyway, moving over, Jack, very interesting story, and we've been sort of following these things on and off around the world, fertiliser shortage, uh, and it's it, it particularly acute in Africa at the moment. It was the subject of a New York Times report, Jack, um, and, and which reads in part, since February 22, the price of fertiliser has more than doubled in Nigeria and 13 other African countries, according to a survey by Action Aid. Um, concern about food insecurity has been alarmingly high in much of Western Central Africa, according to a World Bank bulletin. Um, now, my understanding is, Jack, there are no um, uh, um, uh, facilities um, uh, to create um, to create uh, uh, inorganic fertilisers anywhere in the continent of Africa. That's correct, isn't it? In fact, uh, I think that's I think right. Yes, the Africans wanted had, had wanted to do so, and the EU and other groups said, "Oh, yeah, no, it's a very good idea, but uh, it's going to, of course, creating inorganic fertilisers." Uh, creates a lot of um, creates a lot of emissions, and so it was put on hold there. And the net effect of that, Jack, is that in the end you have diminished uh, diminished crops, diminished crop yields, uh, and uh, and and Africa's ability to feed its population, which is always tenuous, becomes even worse. Uh, yes, and that's because the people in the EU don't really believe that inorganic fertilisers. Uh, a good idea. Um, they'd like to stop the use. They're trying to do that within the EU. Um, the problem with that is that what there are eight billion people in the world, and um, if we don't use inorganic fertilisers, we can probably feed about five or six billion of them. Yeah, and the other two, the other two billion. Um, well, they'll, they'll be shall they'll we be, say uncertain futures, Jack? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and it's um, uh, it's yet another bad green idea. Yeah, it is, and so, and we, look, the, the price of fertilizer too has been affected. And this is one of the stories that you know in our in our uh, in our early days when we when we looked at specifically matters that were going on around the world, the Ukrainian conflict, the invasion of Ukraine, um, Ukraine and Russia are two of the greatest exporters of inorganic fertilizers, and yeah. that has been restricted specifically um, urea. Uh, that's more of a Chinese thing, I think. Uh, what no, we're talking no, about is well, fossil fuels, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yes, uh, uh, the Chinese are big on urea, but uh, urea, but um, uh, <clears throat> but uh, and, and so that has created this shortage anyway. Um, uh, the Ukrainians' inability to export um, uh, fertilizer, so the prices prices high. So we're actually seeing, perhaps, Jack, uh, what uh, what might be coming down the road. Uh, we're actually getting a bit of a preview there um, on what might happen. And if you you don't have enough fertilisers, then you just don't get the crop yields to feed to, to, to yeah. enough well, people. Well, have a look at uh, Sri Lanka for an example yeah. of what happens. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened. And just for anyone who doesn't know that story, uh, <coughs> the Sri Lankan government um, 
uh, announced a ban on uh, inorganic um, fertilizers. Uh, it just sprang it on the on the on, on their farmers, uh, left them in terrible states. Uh, Sri Lanka had been um, self-sufficient in rice, um, so it, its major cash crop is tea. Um, uh, it, it is no longer self-sufficient in rice, so it has to import rice where it never had to. Um, the ban was lifted, but too late, and you basically had two harvests where um, crops failed, uh, where crop yields were well and truly down, and it, and it's added considerably uh, to uh, to woes within Sri Lanka, Jack. Yeah, it's going to take a while to fix. Yeah, well, just to just to visit that, just for a, revisit that, just for 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 a moment or two, we believe you know just certainly Sri Lanka's political environment has calmed down. They've come to uh, they've come to some sort of debt arrangements with uh, um, uh, with international banking and um, and uh, it. Uh, I think we said on this on a previous show. If you're thinking about going somewhere and throw throwing a little bit of money around as a tourist. Sri Lanka would be a good place to go. Very cheap at the moment and a lovely, lovely place. But they're still battling with significant economic woes. All right. Well, that takes us up to sport, Jack. Um, And we've got a a New Zealand punter has pulled off one of the greatest feats in horse racing history. Has he won something, Jack? Has he he won a race? Oh, no, he's won $10 from the TAB. He did. Um, uh, He... uh chose all 12 horses in the Everest in their finishing order. Um, this Sounds is a, easy. This was, a, this was a promotion put on by TAB to promote um, the, uh, Everest, yeah. uh, the Everest in New Zealand um, uh, uh, because they, like for the first time they had a New Zealand horse in it, I wish I win, um, and uh, he managed to plonk the 12, uh, the 12 horses down in the right order, in the finishing order, and um, uh, the, the prize was $10 million. One, one shot at getting the correct order defied odds of 1 in 479 million, Jack. Yeah, so, 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 he, so the, 10, he, the, the 10 million was unders, really, you know. <laughs> He's won ten million. Um, yes, I'm getting a little confused because the Everest is a twenty million dollar horse race, mm. um, but he's he's picked up the ten million, and uh, yeah, he's yeah, he's under. Yeah, technically, he should have been slung eight hundred million, Jack. Yeah, something something a bit more than ten. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure he'd be, be be happy enough. Look, what did you make of the Everest, Jack? I mean, it, it, there were there were probably. Probably five in the in the race that you think would a chance to win, and the other seven no. Yeah, um, I did my usual thing for a pal who bets more than I did, and, and gave him a list of five, and the and the winner and the second one were in it. Um, uh, look, I, I was a bit of a naysayer about the Everest when uh, it was first announced. I wasn't sure that it would catch on, um, but it certainly has. Um, it creates an oh, immense on, amount they, of interest. They projected the horses on the on the Opera House, Jack. Yeah, how could it not win? <laughs> you remember remember the controversy about that? By the I way? do. Yeah, the first time <laughs> they did was, it. Yeah, it was. Uh, yes, those who aren't in horse racing were particularly unamused. Um, but uh, uh, is it uh, is it the biggest race in Australia now, or is that still the title held by the Melbourne Cup? I suspect it's uh, changed. Yeah, I think, I suspect I think it's probably changed. the cup still probably the cup still holds that. But 
Um, but it, it certainly has changed the face of of racing, particularly in Sydney. Yeah. Particularly in Sydney, that's right. Mm. And, um, uh, and I, look, I also think that given the nature of the Melbourne Cup, two-mile handicap, um, and uh, and given uh, the nature of the Everest, uh, which is like 1,400 metres, isn't it? 1,400? 1,200. 1,200, sorry, yeah. 1,200. Uh, you know, you're going to see the best horses running around the Everest, best Australian horses and New Zealand horses running around the Everest than you are in Melbourne, Melbourne Cup well, with a two-mile two two stay. Well, we were going to talk about racing later on, but we'll, we'll deal with it now. Um, the, the, the difference is that um, Australia breeds um, top-quality sprinters, 1,200-metre yeah. horses, um, and our uh, staying horses uh, are not top quality. So um, uh, Appel asked me for what I thought about the Caulfield Cup, and I gave him a list of five names, and the, the, the first three were all in it. Uh, and that's because what I look for is the horses from Europe or Japan um, that are – they mightn't be A-plus graders, but they're kind of A-minus or B-plus graders, and that's good enough to be – to be to beat most of the Australian horses. Yeah, look, I mean, look, the Melbourne Cup. I mean, everyone has a bet in the Melbourne Cup. Although, you know, sort of eighty percent of the country has a little flutter on the Melbourne Cup. But the fact of the matter is that it's probably the hardest race to pick um, and made more difficult. It's firstly it's a two mile handicap with a large field, twenty four horse field, so anything can happen. Uh, and and the other thing is, as you say. Uh, most of the quality stayers are coming from overseas. Uh, and often they haven't had a run, um, more often than not, they haven't had a run in Australia. Uh, and uh, it's incredibly difficult, made even more difficult than it might have been in 1975 to pick a winner in the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. Well, in, 19, in the 1970s, um, uh, the, astute, the astute Australian trainers were going to New Zealand to buy up <coughs> uh, staying horses. Um, these days, there's um, there are agents scouring around, Ireland, um, in, including a couple that yeah. I know, um, uh, scouring around. Um, there's an Irish fellow and a French fellow that I know who, who, who make a living by uh, bringing staying horses from from Europe into uh, Australia for the cups. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, we'll 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 give you some uh, give you a little bit of uh, inside stuff uh, as we as we approach. Uh, the spring carnival proper um, and we'll, we'll do all of that sort of next week and over the next couple Jack it's not far away Melbourne Cup now really isn't the first Tuesday in November I think that makes it about the 7th um, yep. uh, yeah that's right yeah, Cox, seventh, Co- Cox Plate Day this week this this weekend um, and yeah. if you want to and uh, um, uh, if you're having a bet on that um, have a good look at Gold Trip there you go. You heard it from Jack, and and if you don't want to have a bet, you can still listen to Daryl Braithwaite. He must just look look forward to um, Cox Plate Day, Jack. It's just pretty much the only gig he gets these days now. Get a, get up and sing the horses um, before uh, before the race, uh, and yeah. uh, and the Cox Plate. I think they run at about six o'clock um, six o'clock uh, Melbourne time uh, in order to expand its uh, expand its um, uh, viewership around the national news. So uh, if you're wondering why it's been run so late, that's why. Cricket World Cup, Jack. Um, Australia's, like this time last week, uh, 
the English were having a great big laugh at Australia, sitting down on the bottom of the table after losses to India and South Africa. Um, really did change things uh, with uh, with Bull Warner just scoring a magnificent 160. I think uh, the calls for his retirement have just just slowed a little bit. 160 magnificent runs. Mitch Marsh put on he and Mitch Marsh put on 240 odd. Uh, and they got the job done against Pakistan. Warner's first six actually hit the top of the stand, um, and um, I just, I just, I just love him as a cricketer. But we'll go on. We'll talk about Dave in a minute because I've just got a lovely story about him. Um, but Australia's uh, World Cup is back uh, on track. We play Holland now. We've uh, beaten Pakistan. Uh, who else did we roll, Jack? Um, um, uh, uh, yeah, we gone wins. okay. Um, um, Afghanistan beat England, I think, so a, a more momentous thing than we've done. Sensational, and they didn't just beat them, Jack. They absolutely thumped them. Yeah, beat them by seventy odd runs, I think. Yeah, uh, and uh, it looked very, very poor. It looks like they have, you know, um, come into this come into this tournament. England, that is, come into this tournament very, very underdone. Um, uh, India, look, India beat New Zealand comfortably last night. Uh, despite a, a big hundred from Daryl Mitchell, um, and uh, 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 their batting just looks so solid, Jack. Uh, under, obviously on home turf, very good conditions and you know, suitable conditions, but their batting just looks so strong. Um, the great Coley, uh, Virat Coley, got a hundred, uh, and against New Zealand, just fell about six runs short from a second one for the tournament. I think he's did over a hundred. Um, I'll have to check this. Some hundred uh, ODI hundreds, but anyway, um, uh, they look to be the strength in the competition. South Africa, you identified last week as being a bit of a smoky, and they certainly come up, come up again. Um, they look like they are, you know, tuned for this. So they, they they are definitely in the four. I think Australia are in the four now. Australia playing the Netherlands next. And one thing that's really good about this tournament is you've got no you've got no dead rubbers yet. You know you've you've got you've got everyone's competing, and some have been found wanting, like England, Jack. Yeah, um, Australia will probably fall into the four, um, but um, uh, I think South Africa have the best chance of beating India. But <coughs> to be honest, um, uh, everyone's going to be relying on finding India on a rare off day. That's <coughs> what you're looking at. That's I, I totally agree with that. You're just going to have to hope that uh, you, you get through, and then India just you know you can you can skittle a few of them. Their bowling's so good too, mate. His bowling yeah. is so good. Boomer is almost impossible to get away. Uh, and then uh, they've got uh, the magnificent, the best head of hair in cricket. Uh, Ajay Jadeja, um, who didn't get a wicket last night against New Zealand. You can almost see the batsman when he finished his 10-over spell. Just just breathe a sigh of relief. They didn't get out to him. Um, magnificent cricketer all round. Dropped a catch too, and that is something you never see. He's a brilliant field. Um, and then, of course, uh, World Cup-wise, we've got the Rugby World Cup final being played this weekend, Jack. And it's the ABs, the All Blacks versus South Africa, with the North not even having a sniff. Uh, no. Um, well, uh, again, uh, an excellent um, uh, semi-final. The South yeah. Africa 
Um, uh, England semi was a cracker. Um, England led all night until um, a, a late penalty scrum uh, and the uh, Pollard, the South African kicker, uh, popped it over. Um, as you always, the South, South Africans have a tremendous scrum and a good kicker. Um, and and so the All Blacks disposed of Argentina pretty brutally pretty comfortably. Too. Yeah. So you, I had been hoping for a, a, an Ireland France final because I just because I'd like to see a new name on the cup. Yeah, um, me too. Uh, rather me than too. A, a rehash of well, the only people, only side uh, countries who've won it have been New Zealand, uh, Australia, South Africa, and England. Um, uh, mm. So it would have been nice to see a couple of a, a new name okay. go on there. Um, but, um, um, but who's got the better form going in there? I, I just you know the demolition of Argentina. Probably, uh, probably tells you that they've just had New Zealand had an, a slightly easier run into the final in South Africa. Yeah, well, they certainly had an easier semi. Um, uh, they both had very tough, very very tough, and very close wins in the quarterfinals. Um, uh, I, I've just got to think. I, I just think that South Africa will probably got got them. We have tipped them. I only tip them because I just don't want to see the All Blacks win again. That's the only reason I'm coming up with that. All right, Jack, take us out with something silly. That's very disloyal to your background. You are um, a, a part Kiwi. Yeah, but just, I just it, it become it becomes a bit hard to bear to New Zealanders about the All Blacks. They'll just they just break into a. Have you seen the All Blacks? Have you seen what they've done? You know, they just can't stop talking about it. It just gets irritating. Yeah, um, uh, a Kiwi fellow who I'd never met before. Um, I met him a week or two ago and he was telling me about uh, the gracious uh, All Blacks fans. And I said, are, are there any? I haven't, I haven't met one yet. <laughs> well, they're not horrible, but they they, they just, they, they're, um, they are graceless. Yes, they are graceless. Yeah, they're not, and, and they're I, not, and, and like, I said it's not quite like going to Victoria Park, but, you know, uh, it's not much better. Yeah, you might see a few there. Probably slightly better dental work. But anyway, what do you got for us to take us out, Jack? Oh, look, someone sledging uh, the poor people from Mississippi. Um, uh, this was on social media. CSI Mississippi flop because there were no dental records and everyone has the same DNA. <laughs> We're talking about the white population, I presume, Jack. The... Um, um, the founding of, of, of the southern states of, of the United States is really, really interesting. Um, and uh, there's a lovely moment in a film, um, uh, Gene Hackman film, called uh, Mississippi Burning. And uh, there's a clan. He, he, as, as an FBI man, Gene Hackman goes to a clan meeting and they scan the faces. There's the guys in the Manchester on stage, and then they scan the audience watching it, and there's every broken head you can imagine, and it's basically because the, the southern states were essentially populated prior to the American uh, War of Independence. Uh, they were basically Europe's Europe trash, actually <laughs> European trash, and they came to America as indentured uh, indentured labourers. Uh, and then once that period was up, they became they became it became available to them to, to take land. So the people they should have had the um, uh, the shared experience with were the, were the black Afro American slaves. 
Um, but no, they uh, they chose to hate them instead. Very interesting. But anyway, uh, CSI Just- Mississippi, no, no dental records, and everyone has the same DNA. It's a very good line. Um- yeah, uh, you know there's been all these uh, Hamas protests in, uh, in in at Harvard College. Yes, in, I wrote about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nameless, basically. This caught my eye. Um, the, the, the demonstrators were directing their chants towards the Harvard administrators, um, and as the dean of the college, uh, Rakesh Kurana, walked to his office in Harvard Yard. Students not involved with the protest stopped him and requested a selfie. After that, he posed the protesters uh, entering the yard began to shout at him, uh, Dean Rakesh, we call on you to use your privilege. We call on you to use your position to free Palestine. Uh, <laughs> the, 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 pro- the protester with, with the, me- the, me- the megaphone said, and this went up on, 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 on Twitter, and the response was, apparently courses on the dangers of magical thinking are not too hard. <laughs> tall order for Dean Rakesh there. Can you yeah. just... Can you it just sort of reminds me of that, of that, that famous uh, uh, um, uh, um, newspaper headline from a rural uh, New South Wales um, a newspaper um, uh, during the... the uh, the First World War, we call on the Tsar to uh, uh, to reconsider. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, there's a lot of that stuff still in commentary. <laughs> I mean, if you ever see my advice, my advice to Anthony Albanese, my, you know, you should probably pretty much ignore that. I urge, I urge. Um, and uh, when you see when you see commentators writing, I, I'm telling a politician what to do. You just think, yeah, I, take it from me. Let's just don't, don't waste your time and bother reading it. Uh, it will almost certainly be garbage. Well, there you go, Jack. Show number 50 out of the way. Put the bat down. Get on. You've got to get the head down now and, uh, and, and get on and get another 50. Uh, as uh, as well, I I always got the head down. Just watch you run in between the wickets. I'm not as uh, not as uh, not as quick as I used to be. Um, but uh, thank you very much for your time and uh, over the last fifty episodes, Jack. Um, and uh, just a reminder, we did have quite a lot of uh, uh, listener stuff, which we will put into the show over the next couple of weeks. I do apologise. I have uh, moved house, and it is a horror. Or a horrific episode for anyone uh, who's done it. And most of us have. It's been uh, it's been a difficult time to get organised, but um, but uh, we're back now. So we do welcome your responses. Or I am, and we do welcome your responses. And you can get hold of me on Twitter uh, on at Jack the Inside. DMs are open. Or if you want to have a want to have a uh, chat with Jack, uh, you can get hold of him on his Substack, which is Hong Kong Jack at hongkongjack.substack.com. It will tell you you've got to subscribe, but you can subscribe for free. free. Uh, yeah, that's just you give, your, give your email address away. You'll just go. You'll just, your data will be used against you at some point in the future. Thank you, Jack, and we'll catch you next week, listeners.